Hello, welcome to another episode of Capital Employed FM. Joining me in conversation for this episode was Gary Mishurus from Silver Ring Value Partners. In this episode, Gary provides an overview of his investment style and philosophy. He then talks about two companies in his portfolio that he is bullish on for the long term, one large cap and one small cap. I really enjoyed listening to him and I think you will too. Before we jump into this episode, please make sure to add your email to the Capital Employed email list. We will be publishing some exclusive interviews that will only be available to those on the list. To receive these bonus episodes, please visit capitalemployed.fm forward slash exclusive and add your email to the list. Please enjoy my conversation with Gary. Hi Gary, thanks for coming on to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Can you provide an overview of Silver Ring Value Partners? What is the investment um, philosophy and investment style? Of course. Um, and so, you know, Silver Ring Value Partners is a concentrated intrinsic value partnership. I typically own between 10 and 20 investments, typically hold them for three to five years, although everything is for sale at any given point at the right price. So it's not a, it's more of an output variable as opposed to an input variable into the process. The idea here is that I want to focus on predictable businesses where I can look out five to 10 years and approximately you know, understand the economics that far out and then get a margin of safety in terms of the price as well as the quality of the business and the people operating the businesses. And what type of businesses do you like to invest in? What are the characteristics or perhaps industries you like to focus on? Sure. So I, you know, I guess the way I like to frame it is, you know, I think of intrinsic value investing as a broad tent. And there's on the one end of the continuum is Benjamin Graham and on the other end is you know, Phil Fisher and, and the compounders that people currently like to focus on, I think, disproportionately. And both styles and everything in the middle can work. I teach a seminar on value investing. And when I teach my students, I always like to tell them, like, look, you know, there are many styles that can be successful. That question is what's going to be most successful for you based on your own strengths and weaknesses and your circumstances. So in my case, I like to focus on companies where there is a proven history of success. Usually that means a history of ample free cash flow for over 10 years, a history of return on capital in excess of the cost of capital for you know, a full economic cycle, and a business model that makes me believe there's something sustainable and predictable there that you know usually means there's a competitive advantage that's sustainable to some degree. And so I like to think of the past as the prologue for the future. I understand it's going to be different. It's not going to be exactly the same, but it's hopefully by studying the history of the business, understanding where it came from, I can get a pretty decent understanding of at least ballpark what the future might entail. So to answer your question more specifically, that excludes a whole bunch of business models such as, say, early stage biotechs or maybe energy companies, for example, where I don't really know. And I thought about this for the 20 years I've been in business. You know, how do you forecast the price of oil? And I haven't come up with a good way. That doesn't mean that someone else can't. It just means that I haven't come up with a way that I'm comfortable with. So I avoid kind of commodity businesses. I avoid businesses without a specific history of you know success. I avoid businesses where you know you're trying to bet against the base rate probabilities, meaning that you're trying to 
you know, bet on something that maybe it's trading at 50 times earnings, but, you know, it's the best compounder on earth and it should be worth 300 times earnings. And that's fine. I understand mathematically that those exist, but that's not my sweet spot or the investment patterns, if you will, they follow on. So I, I invest in two types of patterns. One pattern is a predictable business that came upon a temporary hard time and where the market is pricing it as if that's hard time that's permanent. The other pattern is a business that has a long duration to its growth, but maybe the magnitude of the growth rate is not very high. Because people like to focus on the magnitude of the growth, but they're not as they think good, I think, in terms of thinking about the duration of growth. So if a business is maybe growing high single digits or 10%, that number doesn't excite the market that much. But if that's sustainable for 10, 15, 20 years, mathematically, it's very valuable. And they find that it's frequently undervalued. So those are the two patterns I'm particularly, I think, good at. In terms of industries, you know, it can be healthcare, it can be consumer, it can be industrials. There's a whole host of industries. It's really based more on the individual business model, I would say. And is your main focus on the US markets or do you look uh, international? I do look internationally. I mean, the requirements that I have is I, I need the rule of law to be strongly enforced. I need quality financial statements in English. I, I speak two and a half languages, but I trust my English most at this point. So I'm, you know, if I can't read the financial statements in English, I'm going to be a little suspicious of my ability to assess the business. And I want the market to be the, the main factor. In, I mean, the, the economic markets, not the stock market, in terms of determining the success of the business as opposed to government interventions. So there, there are some markets where I'm not sure if you know, the free market is really free. And maybe you can argue that it's not completely free anywhere in the world anymore, but at least I want the majority outcome of outcome come from the uh, market forces. Because I think of myself as a microeconomic analyst, as someone who studies the competitive nature of each industry and the competitive positioning of each company and reaches certain conclusions, as opposed to someone who is really good at predicting what the government might or might not do. So those are the three criteria. In practice, I would say that leads me to developed markets such as US, UK, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, you know, parts of Europe. And that's probably where my circle of competence ends. I completely understand that people have successfully invested in other markets like China or Africa and, and that's fine, but I'm not sure that that's where my personal comfort zone lies at this point. And just a quick question about concentration. How many stocks do you normally hold? How concentrated do you get? Yeah, so I typically hold between 10 and 20, and I would say I'm mostly, I'm more often on the lower end of that continuum than the upper end of the continuum. Now, maybe not to go on a tangent, but concentration is partly a function of your style and partially a function of your kind of investment environment. Like if you think about what's the cost of diversification, you know, it's two things. One is it's your time, and two is presumably if you have your 10 most attractive investments, the 11th is probably not as attractive. But uh, how much less attractive it is depends. There are times in the market where the 11th and the 12th and the 13th and the 14th and the 15th investments are not that much less attractive than the 10th. Maybe they're already among the companies you've studied and you know well, in which case it makes much more sense to be more diversified because in that case, why not, right? The, you don't want to be arrogant and think that you're going to be right in every single stock. No one is going to do that, right? 
On the other hand, there are times in the market where the expected rate of return from your 11, 12, 13, 14, 15th investment is much lower than your 10th, in which case your cost of diversification is quite high. So I think part of it is the comfort, part of it is the environment. And the way I think about it is I don't want any one decision to drive the long-term results of the partnership. I really want it to be the process because I'm an engineer by training and I really want the repeatable process to be the driver, not a single decision. And so therefore, I want to have enough diversification to make sure it's the process driving the outcome, but I also don't want to diversify to the point where I'm substantially lowering the expected returns. So if we may, can we talk about uh, a few stocks in your portfolio that you feel have good long-term potential and what was the thesis for investing? Yeah, sure, of course. Uh, I mean, I think one company that's interesting and, you know, my portfolio spans from everything from under 100 million uh, to, you know, over 100, uh, at one point over 100 billion. So I'll give you one large one and one small one. You know, a large one uh, that's been somewhat in the news recently is a company called Discovery Communications. It's a large cap company. It's been quite a volatile stock, but the fundamentals of the business have been pretty steady. What Discovery Communications does is it's a cable networks company. It has cable networks such as uh, food, HGTV, travel channel, and so forth. Mostly non nonfiction genre content. It owns a, libra- a vast library of content in those places, and that's a pretty global internet uh, company. It's both in the U.S., in Europe, and Latin America, and a number of other markets. So, uh, you know, the market has been concerned with the kind of decline in the pay TV universe, meaning that the distributors that distribute this content have been losing customers, and therefore people are worried that this is a declining business. I don't think it is a declining business. So far, the evidence suggests it's not a declining business. And if I look at this company, it's been trading for a long time, you know, probably, you know, in a, between low double-digit free cash flow yield to a mid, mid-teens free cash flow yield. Again, implying that it's a completely declining stream of free cash flow. But both in terms of my fundamental analysis and uh, also the evidence we've seen over the last, say, five years, the business has not been declining. More recently, they've been, you know, in the, there were two events that kind of created an opportunity. One event is... Now, there was a family office slash hedge fund that levered up, blew up, very well known, and they essentially were forced selling a number of a small group of stocks, including Discovery, which caused Discovery stock to essentially get cut in half, which was a great kind of non-fundamental price opportunity for someone who is a long-term investor and doesn't care about how many block trades there might be next week or next month. So I think Discovery is trading probably close to 60% of its value, probably even some uh, potentially close to half of its value as a business. The second part is that it's recently announced that it's essentially acquiring the Warner Media business, which is HBO, the Warner uh, Studios, CNN, and a few other assets from AT&T. And it's kind of like the minnow swallowing the whale. But what they're doing is they're buying from a distressed seller. And that distressed seller is AT&T because AT&T is under pressure from activists. It's also under pressure from underperforming for a long time and uh, buying a lot of these assets at their own prices. So they're selling these businesses. They don't have to, but they almost have to within a certain span of time. And so in this case, essentially, Discovery shareholders are able to buy these very iconic assets 
HBO and the library, for instance. Now, there are no other assets quite like it without being a premium. So essentially, the synergies, which there should be substantial synergies in terms of Salesforce and other things that shouldn't impact content production, are substantial. Usually, the acquirer has to pay a premium, right? And the value accrues to the, uh, to the seller. And in this case, just to keep the math simple, there is no premium because the seller is in distress. So there, you know, and you have John Malone as a one of the outsider CEOs, who's not the CEO, but he's kind of the, the power behind the throne. You know, you can call him a controlling shareholder, and he is the architect of this deal to get global scale. So that's one example on the large cap side. On a completely other extreme, you know, I own a very a small company, a microcap called Freshy. This one you'll have to dig into, like to even look up what they do. You know, they to save you the time, they're U.S. and Canadian franchisor of um, healthy fast food restaurants, salad bowls, and so forth. There are a couple of interesting things you know, about the stock while I'm involved. One is that you know, this, a substantial portion of the market cap is in cash. Two is you have a founder who is the CEO and is very much interested in making this business a success. And three is that there's two businesses here. One everyone's aware of, and the second one that's more nascent and that the market isn't focusing on. And the first businesses, they have about 400 or so restaurants that they franchise, mostly in Canada, to some degree in the U.S. That business had has had trouble prior to COVID. That trouble got worse with COVID. And so from a comparable sales perspective, that business looks quite terrible. Although as a franchisor, they're not as impacted by the decline in sales as if they actually own and operated the restaurants. If you look at the private market value transactions of some businesses that are similar, even ones that are bankruptcy, you can basically come up with upside to the current uh, stock price from that in the restaurant business plus the cash on the balance sheet, and there is no debt. Now, the hidden business that I think has quite a lot of potential, but it has to be realized, and we'll see if it will be, is their consumer package business, where they have partnerships with companies like Air Canada, Walmart Canada, Shell, and a few others where they are providers of healthy food to those companies. So, for instance, if you fly on Air Canada, you might get an option to buy a wrap or a bowl that's uh, provided by Freshy. And the competitive intensity in that business is quite different from the restaurant business, which is quite cutthroat, because very few businesses have the scale to service Air Canada or Walmart at the scale and scope that is required to have the consistency that those customers demand. So you have this business essentially that isn't valued at all, and maybe it shouldn't be because a lot of those partnerships are in trial stage or in the middle of being rolled out more broadly. But I think this company has demonstrated that they have developed a brand that convinced some pretty large companies to partner with them. And that's not something that some mom and pop or even a regional chain can easily replicate has much higher barriers to entry and potentially competitive advantage that is meaningful. The good news is we're not really paying anything for it. And so I look at this as a situation where heads, I don't lose very much and tails, we can win a lot. Thanks for sharing those two companies, Gary. They both look interesting situations. The freshy one, that's um, is the ticker FRII listed on Toronto Stock Toronto. Exchange. That's right. That's the yeah. one. Okay. For full disclosure, I'm you know I'm a filer, so or silver ring value partners is a 
uh, over 10% owners. Um, so I, I want to make sure I disclose that. I don't want to create any. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm a long-term holder, but I want to make sure everyone is aware of that. Yeah, thanks for sharing that, Gary. Is, is there a person you've met, possibly a mentor or a book you've read that you feel has made you a better investor? So I started investing about 20 years ago, and that was at MIT. I was studying computer science and economics during the tech bubble. And I thought I was smart. I'm studying these uh, topics, and um, I'm going to invest my meager savings into a tech stock because all of them were going up. And I grew up poor, and I was working two jobs during the school year, and I could use a little bit more money. And I was lucky in that I got, I picked the only stock in the tech uh, sector that went down. And I say lucky because had I picked one that went up, I would have gotten the wrong lesson. And the lesson would have been, hey, you know, if you don't do any work, you buy some stock uh, because, you know, someone gives you a stock tip and then, you know, you make a lot of money. And that's the wrong lesson. And that's, by the way, the wrong lesson if you're listening to this and you have to caveat emptor. If you are thinking about buying any of the two stocks I mentioned, I would highly encourage you to do your own thinking, your own work. Or if you're on some internet forum getting hot stock tips, I would caution you against that. But I learned that the hard way because I bought a tech stock based on almost no work and it didn't go up. And right around that time, Warren Buffett came and spoke on campus at the Sloan School of Management. And here was this guy talking about long-term intrinsic value and all of that stuff, which is second nature now, but was new at the time, which prompted me to read all I could about value investing. The I guess the punchline isn't Warren Buffett, although I've learned a lot from studying Warren Buffett and Berkshire Hathaway, is I was fortunate enough to get a job with Fidelity Investments and Equity Research. And there was a terrific investor who uh, who was there and is still there, a gentleman by the name of Joel Tillinghast, who manages the low-priced stock fund at Fidelity. And just a very rational, terrific, long-term investor. So it's one thing to listen to Warren Buffett or read Warren Buffett stuff and think, oh, okay, that makes sense. But investing is hard in part because the learning cycle is so long. I like to tell people, like, the opposite example of a short learning cycle is hammering and nails, right? You know, if you miss, your, your finger really hurts because you, you hit your finger with a hammer and you know you're not good at that and you either change your approach or you hire someone to do it for you. But in investing, you can get false positives and false negatives and it takes a long time to figure out if you're any good. So having an actual person who's experienced and good observing your process and giving you real-time feedback on what you're doing right and what you're doing wrong really accelerates your learning. So I would say Joel Tillinghast was a terrific mentor in my early years, uh, the three years I spent at Fidelity in my the beginning of my career. And I just have tremendous respect for Joel. And you know, that's where I got kind of the idea of like focusing on predictable businesses, you know, co- companies with free cash flow, high returns of capital, and so forth. Yeah, that's fantastic. So where can listeners go to find out more information about you and Silver Ring Fellow Partners? Sure. Um happy to connect with anyone on LinkedIn. Uh, just uh, look me up. There are two other websites I would say. One is behavioralvalueinvestor.com. I write about an article a month on some intersection of value investing and behavioral finance. And the second is uh, just a silverringvaluepartners.com, just the company website. I have an owner's manual, which I share with all my partners, where I describe my investment process in depth. And if any of the listeners want to get it, I'll be happy to send it to them free of charge. Many a time I have students or others uh, reach out who I know will highly unlikely ever be partners, but I'm happy to share it with them in case it helps them in their own investment journey. Uh, brilliant. 
Okay, yeah. Thanks so much, Gary, for coming on to the uh, podcast. It's been a pleasure to listen to you. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it.